0: Welcome back to another week of Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and today we'll be studying Alma 39-42, to 42, Alma's message to his son, Corey Anton. To set the stage, let me take you back to my late adolescence. I know, scary thought. I do believe that repentance expunges the record, but let me at least confess this one. I had a curfew of midnight throughout most of those high school years, and I typically kept the curfew. My parents trusted me with that, and so they'd go to bed and not wait out for me with the understanding that when I got home, I'd come in and at least wake them up and let them know that I was home. Well, there was one night that I remember that I missed curfew, and I missed it bad. We weren't doing anything horrible. I think, honestly, we were toilet papering, and we were on a roll, literally, and didn't want to stop. And so I missed curfew and just kind of bagged it. I figured, well, maybe I'll just tiptoe into my room or past the master bedroom and whisper in, hey, mom, dad, I'm home. That way I could legitimately tell them the next day, oh yeah, I told you that I got home. You must have just slept through it. Well, that's what I did that night. And I snuck into my room thinking I'd gotten away with it until I looked at my desk and there was a note on it. And the note said, Jared, it's midnight and you're not home. Love, dad. And I thought, ah, now there's evidence. There's exhibit A that I missed curfew. And I thought, well, dad does know I missed curfew, but it doesn't know how badly I missed curfew. Well, he had an idea, because after note one was note number two, that said, Jared, it's now 2 a.m., and you're still not home. I went out looking for you, but couldn't find you, so I came back home. I couldn't think of any good reason why you wouldn't be here. And then he said this, and I'll never forget it. In fact, I kept the note. I thought someday I'll be able to laugh about this. It took me a while. But at the bottom of the note, it said, Come see me in the morning so we can talk about failed family responsibility. Dad, not love dad this time, just dad. And believe me, the next day we had a great conversation. It was a hard talk, at least for me, but one that I needed and that I'm grateful for. I've had a few hard talks with my own children since then. Well, that's what we're getting today. Alma's message to Helaman was one part conversion and one part commitment His message to Shiblon was one part commendation and one part caution. Well, his message to Corianton is one part condemnation and another part counsel, and then a beautiful explanation of the plan of redemption, which is exactly what Corianton would need to understand. You see, to cut to the chase, Corianton had broken the law of chastity as a missionary. It doesn't get much more serious than that. So to see this conversation between father and son, or in this case, essentially between mission president and missionary, between prophet and member of the church. All kinds of hats were being worn here. But to keep an eye out for what will Alma say to help his son. I think it's interesting, the role reversal. At one point, it was Alma the elder, worried about this wayward son of his, Alma the younger, wondering what he could possibly do to reach him and change his course. Well, now it's that son, Alma the younger, It's his turn as he's raising the next generation to have a little bit of enforced empathy, I like to call it. Now you know what you were putting your father through and how he felt. Back then, you were probably focused on your father's potential anger. Now that you're in the father's role, do you recognize that what your father was probably feeling even more was love and concern and a desire to help? These are probably lessons that no child will fully understand until they're on the giving end of them. But for us as outside readers, we can even sort of see in these messages kind of a transition, a build up to this message from Alma to Corianton. Because as he shared his conversion story to Helaman, the message was clear people can change. So as a future leader of the church, son, lead with love and hope and patience. To Shiblon, strengths can become our downfall. So be careful, watch yourself, prove your contraries. And now to Corianton sin will lead to destruction so repent people can change watch yourself repent of your sins all essential messages for each of us to know now as alma begins it in chapter 39 verse 1 he says my son i have somewhat more to say unto thee than what i said unto thy brother it's like brace yourself son this one's going to be a longer conversation and i love how a father who loves all of his sons equally can treat them differently based on what they need at the time. In this case, Corianton needs extra attention. I hope Helaman and Shiblon understand that and aren't jealous. It's like Nephi when he sees his dad name the valley after Lemuel and the river after Laman and nothing after Nephi. I think Nephi got it. These are things that my older brothers need from dad. I remember when we were pregnant with our second child and I asked my dad, how do you shift from parenting one to parenting multiple? At least we could still play man-to-man defense. It's not still child number three that you have to shift to zone. But with that in mind, how do you do that? You just make sure you give each child equal time? And my dad said, no, you just meet needs. And their needs will not be equal. And so the time you dedicate to meeting those needs won't be equal either. Treat them with the same amount of love and the same amount of attention. But as you pay attention to each child, you'll recognize who needs you when. And that's the case for Alma and Corianton. He says to his son, have ye not observed the steadiness of thy brother, his faithfulness and his diligence in keeping the commandments of God? Behold, has he not set a good example for you? Here he's speaking of Shiblon. I'm sure Helaman set a wonderful example too. But Helaman was home during that mission, helping lead the church in Zarahemla. Shiblon was there with Corianton on this mission to the Zoramites, during which Corianton made this horrible mistake. And like we saw back in chapter 38, steadiness and diligence and faithfulness describe Shiblon to a T. By the way, there's no mention to Corianton of the potential tails on that coin, like we talked about last week. Corianton doesn't need to know about Shiblon's weaknesses. He's got a major one of his own to deal with right now. And I don't think this is dad trying to pit one child against another. Why can't you be more like your brother? That's a dangerous thing for any parent to say to any child also. But if we can assume that there was a good relationship between these brothers, and hopefully there was, then the idea of bringing his brother's example to Corianton's attention may have been even more meaningful than setting a powerful example of his own. Sometimes the horizontal sibling to sibling or peer to peer is more convincing evidence of the power of the gospel, the importance of the commandments than any kind of vertical relationship could provide. In my wife's family, there were 10 brothers and sisters, and I've never seen a family where the siblings are more tightly knit than in that one. It's amazing. They're all best friends. And at one point, her father talked to one of the youngest kids and said, you know, I'll bet you're more concerned what your siblings would think if you broke the commandments than what your parents would think. Am I right in that? And this younger child agreed and was kind of like, I'm sorry, does that disappoint you that I I care less about what you think than what my siblings think? And my father-in-law said, oh, no, I think that's wonderful. It's that being on the same level with everyone else, that closeness, that tightness. And I would imagine that Shiblon and Corianton had that. Now, jumping ahead to verse 10, don't worry, we'll come back to what we skipped. But in verse 10, Alma states the obvious. Thou art in thy youth, and you stand in need to be nourished by your brothers give heed to their counsel. So it's not just what they're doing, good example, but also what they're saying. Amazing that both of those are coinciding. But I love just this gentle reminder, son, you're young, which means first, you need a lot of help. And second, it means you probably need and deserve a lot of patience and understanding. I was young once too, and didn't live the way my father had hoped. I changed, so can you. But with this idea of him being young in mind, it's interesting to consider what are the kinds of sins that youth are most likely to slip into. If you go back to verse two, notice this one, "Thou didst go on unto boasting in thy strength and thy wisdom. Remember, that was a concern for Shiblon as well, not to think you're better than your brethren. Well, perhaps this is a family trait of sorts. They were in positions of authority after all, well-educated, well-known among the people, this family. I think that is one danger of the the most faithful, the the good stock, the most visible members of the church in an area, especially if they're comparing themselves to less actives. They have been serving among the dissenting Zoramites, after all, or among non-members who don't know any different. Easy to set yourself up on a pedestal when the people that you're surrounded by don't care for that kind of elevation themselves. So pride is definitely one issue here. Verse 14, here's another one. Seek not after riches nor the vain things of this world, for behold, you cannot carry them with you. I guess that idea of you can't take it with you is a very old concept. But worldliness, materialism, riches and vain worldly things, that seems to be something that grabs the attention of the young as well. What does everyone else have? What does everyone else want? Well, then, of course, I want the same thing myself. As I've often reassured my students and my children, life does tend to get a little bit easier about not caring what other people think. If you don't believe me, just look at what your parents generally wear. That's often evidence that they don't care quite as much as others about what people think about them. I'm guilty of that as well. And then the third thing, which is what we'll spend our time on in this chapter, is the major sin that Coriantid committed there among the Zoramites. In verse three and four, going after the harlot Isabel, Who stole away the hearts of many? So there's the three pride, materialism or worldliness, and lusts of the flesh, some kind of physical appetite. Sound familiar? Those are the three temptations that Jesus faced in Matthew chapter 4. Change the stones to bread, there's the physical appetite. Cast yourself from the temple, there's pride. Worship me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth, there's worldliness and materialism. So these big three are not just for youth, they're for all of us. Saul, David, and Solomon, the only three kings that united Israel had, Saul falls to pride, David falls to the lust of the flesh, Solomon falls to worldliness and materialism. These are the same three that Jacob chastised the Nephites for during his ministry, the same three that characterized the great and abominable church and Nephi's visions, the same three that King Noah and his wicked court struggled with, the same three among the people of Ammonihah, the same three among the wicked Zoramites that ascended the Rameumptom. It's always the same three. Because basically, it's only those three. So I wouldn't say that these are problems that only the youth face. We all face them. But rather, problems that youth seem particularly prone to. Either because they haven't had as much experience or understanding in knowing how people get into those problems. Or how people get out of those problems when they slip. Well, Alma is going to provide some help for this young son of his in both areas. And he'll focus on the sexual sin side of things that lust of the flesh, the the immorality. And notice what he says about it in verse five. Know ye not, my son, that these things are an abomination in the sight of the Lord? Yea, most abominable above all sins, save it be. So it's not first place, but it does look like it's third. The other two, second and first, are the shedding of innocent blood. That's the second worst. Or denying the Holy Ghost. That's the first. He ranks them that way in verse six, behold, if ye deny the Holy Ghost when it once hath had place in you, and ye know that you deny it, behold, this is a sin which is unpardonable. This is son of perdition territory. I've had some students over the years ask, wait a minute, so if you ignore a prompting, does that count as denying the Holy Ghost? And the answer for that is definitely no. To receive the greatest condemnation, one would have to sin against the greatest light. That's what section 82 says, right? And so for this greatest of condemnations, you would have to sin against the greatest of light. Joseph Smith described it as staring into the sun and denying that it's shining. Paul called it crucifying Christ afresh and putting him to an open shame. It's like watching him rise from the grave, seeing the marks in his hands and saying, if I had a chance to crucify you all over again, even knowing what I know now, I would do it. That is so far beyond the level of knowledge and accountability that any of us would reach in this life. So anyone struggling with fears of becoming a son of perdition, I think those fears are unfounded. You're not going to slip into it. In fact, I love the phrase he uses, and ye know that ye deny it. You see, there's this defiance there. You don't slip into perdition. You proudly march in that direction, flaunting your rejection of light that you know is there. I've often wondered if that's the reason that it is unpardonable, not necessarily because God just declares, I will never forgive you for that. That doesn't sound like our loving Father or our long-suffering Lord. I've wondered, is it unpardonable because a person that is that defiant, that stubborn and rebellious, that hard-hearted would never choose to repent, no matter how much time you gave them, because they know the truth. Nothing has changed up here and they don't allow anything to change in here, to change the direction that they're going or change their decision to rebel. So unpardonable, not because unrepentable, but because stubbornly unrepented. Well, that's sin number one. In second place is murder. Whosoever murdereth against the light and knowledge of God, it is not easy for him to obtain forgiveness. He didn't say impossible, but not easy. And he repeats it. Yea, I say unto you, my son, that it is not easy for him to obtain a forgiveness. Perhaps one of the reasons for that difficulty is that it's impossible to provide restitution. You can't give someone's life back to them. You can't bring them back to the family that you've stolen them from. That helps explain the irony behind what the anti-Nephi-Lehi's suggested when they thought, well, we'll just go back to the Nephites and be their slaves until we can repair the many murders that we have committed against them. There's no repairing murder. So it can be forgiven, but it is not easy. Well, and then in third place are these things that he mentions in verse five. Abominable in the sight of the Lord, sins against virtue, against chastity, Perhaps because, similar to murder, it's really hard for restitution to change things. Life is God's territory. He decides when it comes in and when it goes out. Beginnings and endings of that are supposed to be in God's hands. So if murder ends a life when it wasn't supposed to be ended, and if immorality conceives a life in a way that God did not intend either, no wonder those are two sins that need to be avoided at all costs. Now, sometimes when I've taught this, especially to young people, they think, well, if immorality is only the third worst sin, at least it's like that justification we often use. Well, it's not as bad as such and such or so and so. But before we begin to console ourselves that ours was just a third place finish, remember what first and second place were. Number one is probably not an option for you. We don't have enough light to sin against it to that degree of darkness. And number two probably isn't a temptation. Do you really have to throw yourself on your knees and beg for the Lord's help to get you through your temptations to kill someone? I hope not. So if number one is not an option and number two is not an issue, then number three for us is probably really number one in reality. The most serious of sins. One that we have to take seriously. Well, that's exactly what father is trying to help son understand here. There seem to be kind of two lines of thought that are woven throughout this chapter. One has to do with how immorality begins, what gets us into this mess. And the other has to do with how we get ourselves out of this mess, or better said, how the Lord helps us out of it. So let's take the first line of thought first. What steps define this downward slope? In verse two, he said, thou didst not give so much heed unto my words as did thy brother among the people of the Zoramites now this is what I have against thee. That is so often how it begins. It's not the worst thing he did, but it seems to be the first thing that he did. And worst sins usually begin with first sins. In his case, it was ignoring counsel, not giving heed. No wonder he says to both Helaman and Shiblon, first verse, first phrase out of his mouth to those other two brothers, my son, give ear to my words please listen to the counsel that I give. It is for your good. It was for your good too, Corianton, but you didn't give it much heed. Do we disregard the commandments of God? Do we think that we're the exception to the rule? Especially if that thought process leads us to think, like we already read at the end of verse two, boasting in our own strength and our own wisdom. You see, pride in this case wasn't just a separate sin. It opened the door to far worse sins. That's how Jacob described it back in Jacob chapter two, right? He talked about their pride and he talked about their worldliness and materialism. But then he said, if this was all there was, I'd be relieved. But unfortunately, there are grosser crimes that we have to deal with. And those grosser crimes were the ones of immorality, just like here. And what Corianton is guilty of to start things, I don't have to listen to that. I'm strong enough to handle any situation or smart enough to get myself out of it there's my strength and my wisdom. It's not that I wasn't paying attention to what dad said. It's just, I didn't think it applied to me. This is Samson to a T. We've talked about him several times throughout these lessons. I can't necessarily speak to his wisdom, but his strength is what he was most famous for. And he kept putting himself into harm's way because he always assumed I'm strong enough to get out of it. And when it was a lion in the vineyards of Timnath, he was strong enough. When it was the Philistine army, when he was in that city at night, he was strong enough. But with Delilah, he finally met his match. He wasn't strong enough or smart enough to handle the situation. And the same is true of Corianton. His strength and wisdom tricked him into thinking he could handle certain things. Well, what things? Notice verse 3. Thou didst do that which was grievous unto me, for thou didst forsake the ministry. There's another mistake. He wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. That describes David on that rooftop when he fell with Bathsheba. It says clearly in that passage that during the time of year when kings were off to battle, David tarried in Jerusalem. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. He wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. Corianton had forsaken the ministry. Next, he had gone over into the land of Siren among the borders of the Lamanites. Again, this is probably where his strength and his wisdom lulled him into a false sense of security. I can be among the borders. I can get close to the edge. I won't cross it. I'm strong enough to resist temptation. I just want to see what's out there. This describes the Zoramites themselves really well, the people they had gone to preach the gospel to. They had settled in the borders of the land near the wilderness, which was infested with Lamanites. How close to the lion can I be? Well, particularly those who have a lot of strength and wisdom, they feel like they can get away with that. They'll be able to handle it. But it wasn't just that he went among the borders of the Lamanites. He specifically went after the harlot Isabel. It's amazing that we learn her profession even before we learn her name. This to me comes across as a, you knew what I was when you picked me up kind of situations. And that's often the case in our downward descents as well. We begin to ignore counsel, we think we're the exception to the rule, we put trust in our own strength and wisdom to be able to handle things, we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing, we put ourselves in harm's way, at the edge of safety, and we know what we're looking at. We see what's before us, and yet we fall to it. And even when we do, verse 4, she did steal away the hearts of many, but this was no excuse for thee, my son thou shouldst have tended to the ministry wherewith thou wast entrusted. Just because everyone else is doing it, and that's the phrase that's often used as justification, that does not justify us. We know better. The majority doesn't rule in matters of right and wrong. And just because we see a lowering of the spiritual averages does not mean that we can join the trend. Worst of all, If you were justifying your bad behavior because of what you saw other people do, well, now other people were justifying their bad behavior because what they saw you do. In verse 11, he said, Behold, O my son, how great iniquity ye brought upon the Zoramites. For when they saw your conduct, they would not believe in my words. Your conduct spoke louder than my testimony. And that's one of the reasons we failed among certain people there among the Zoramites. You were counter evidence when you should have been confirming evidence. I needed a second witness. And instead, you became a witness for the other side. That is tragic, son. Now, as the weight and reality of this sin is pressing upon Corianton's shoulders, throughout this chapter, father also counsels his son with those truths that would help him resist those kinds of temptations moving forward. The kinds of things that would have helped him avoid these kinds of sins in the first place. Notice one we already read at the end of verse 4. Thou shouldst have tended to the ministry wherewith thou wast entrusted. Fill your life with good, and there won't be room or time for the negative. In a dark room, you don't open the door and shoo out the darkness. You simply bring in the light, and the darkness has to leave. Tend to the ministry. If the idle mind is the devil's playground, Satan doesn't have much room to work when our spiritual signage reads, no vacancy. In verse 8, he says, behold, you cannot hide your crimes from God. That's an essential piece of advice as well. Except ye repent, he continues, they will stand as a testimony against you at the last day. So don't hide what you're doing from God or from people that could help you. Repent of your sins instead, bringing dark things, hidden things to light often helps us avoid those kinds of things in the future. Someone else is there that can help hold us accountable. In verse nine, he says more of the same. I would that ye should repent and forsake your sins and go no more after the lusts of your eyes. That's where it begins, with the eyes. Remember what the Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount. If I right I offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. The law only said, don't commit adultery. Don't commit the unrighteous act. But the Lord says, "But I say, here He raises the bar, don't even look with lust, because that helps control the desire that would lead to the act. So begin with the eye. There's a great phrase in the book of Job when his so-called friends are accusing him, you must have done something wrong to deserve all of this punishment." And immorality was one of their suggestions. Did you break a law of chastity? And Job's response is incredible. He says, "I have made a covenant with mine eye." How then can I look upon a maid? My eye is under my control. I do not go after the lusts of mine eyes. And if I don't even look, then of course I won't cross that line into action. Alma continues, cross yourself in all these things. How do I control my eyes? How do I keep from going after the lusts of the eyes, which often lead to the lusts of the flesh? I cross myself in all these things. He says the same phrase at the end of the verse, cross yourself in these things. Well, what does that mean? In the Joseph Smith translation of Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, the Lord explains that phrase and he says, now for a man to take up his cross, or in our case, to cross ourselves, is to deny himself of all ungodliness and every worldly lust and keep my commandments. That's what he's asking us to do. Deny ourselves of ungodliness choose not to look, choose not to click, choose not to read or to watch. Self-denial is what he's asking. I think often we wish that those possibilities, those temptations just didn't exist, that they could be wished away or legislated away. But that takes away our responsibility to cross ourselves. And as Alma says in verse nine, "Oh, remember and take it upon you. Like I said, it's self-discipline. It's taking the initiative ourselves and deciding, taking it upon us to draw lines in the sand that we simply won't cross, to forsake sin, to repent of sin that was not forsaken, to take up the cross and deny ourselves of ungodliness. Clayton Christensen, the great Harvard business professor who recently passed away, shared an experience he had when he was a bishop in Boston. He said, about a decade ago, I was serving as the bishop or lay minister of the congregation of college students in the Boston area. So he would have been the YSA bishop. We had assigned a college sophomore to give a sermon about repentance in our service on a particular Sunday. I still remember his key point. Quote, we often view repentance as a slow process. It isn't. Change is instantaneous. It is not changing that takes so much time. Close quote. Brother Christensen says, I had been struggling to overcome a particular bad habit, and I resolved, I took it upon me, as Alma said, that I would change my behavior right then and there, to quit not changing. And then he said, Where else but in this church could a young, inexperienced student have taught a bishop such a profound lesson? That is a profound lesson. What takes so much time is not changing. So, Cory Anton, take it upon yourself. Take the initiative. Take up the cross. Cross yourself. Deny yourself of all ungodliness. Engage in righteous behaviors. Don't try to hide any crimes from God. Fill your life with light and watch darkness recede. In verse 10, we've seen this hinted at already. I command you to take it upon you, another instance of proactivity, of initiative, to counsel with your elder brothers in your undertakings. Talk to them about it if you don't want to talk to me. They're great examples. They want to be. They're on your level and you can be on theirs. Like we saw already, thou art in thy youth and ye stand in need to be nourished by your brothers. So give heed to their counsel. In verse 11, he says, suffer not yourself to be led away by any vain or foolish thing. Now that might fit better with verse 14 about not seeking after riches or the vain things of the world. Maybe this is a gateway sin towards the sin of materialism. Then again, Perhaps both of those are symptoms of this larger disease, that as we're led by vain and foolish things, the vain things of the world, riches and things, that's all self-satisfying. And lack of discipline in that area of our lives often translates into lack of discipline in other areas as well. I want those things, well, why can't I have these feelings or pleasures at the same time? We're not in the habit of denying ourselves in any area. And that lack of self-discipline definitely would mean a lack of self-denial. So often it's those vain or foolish things, the small stupidities that lead us into larger transgressions. It's not just the Lord that believes that by small and simple things, great things are brought to pass. The adversary loves that principle too. Small deviations can lead to major downturns. That's usually the way it is with sin. In verse 11, he continues, suffer not the devil to lead away your heart again after those wicked harlots. You see, verse nine was talking about his eye. Verse 11 is talking about his heart. That's usually the order. We see something, we start thinking about it, then think about it long enough, we start desiring it. This is the same de-evolution that King David went through on that rooftop from eye and mind to heart and desire. In verse 12, the Spirit of the Lord doth say unto me, command thy children to do good. That's the best way to avoid evil, to do good, to fill ourselves with the positive. Or as Zena says in Jacob 5, to clear away the bad branches as the good branches grow. So Alma will do exactly that. Therefore, I command you, my son, in the fear of the Lord, that ye refrain from your iniquities. Refrain from them. Stop indulging in them. Again, easier said than done. How do we do it? Verse 13, turn to the Lord with all your mind, might, and strength that ye lead away the hearts of no more to do wickedly, but rather return unto them and acknowledge your faults and that wrong which ye have done. So turning to the Lord, the vertical side, reestablishing that connection, but also turning to those that you've offended, those that you've sinned against, those whose potential fires of faith you have smothered by your bad example that reestablishes a horizontal component. We're trying to get the two great commandments back in place, loving God and loving neighbor. This is part of the restitution process that repentance typically entails. Again, that's hard to do with immorality, but is there anything that can be done? Then do it. Finally, in verse 15 is where counsel and correction starts to turn into comfort. He says, "I would say somewhat unto you concerning the coming of Christ." we fully diagnosed the problem. Now let's start talking about the cure. Behold, I say unto you that it is he that surely shall come to take away the sins of the world. That's the main reason he's coming. His atonement was for such a time as this. Yea, he cometh to declare glad tidings of salvation unto his people. That's why glad tidings of great joy are always associated with the birth of Christ. He's coming with the good news. That's what gospel means. So even though these last 14 verses have been hard to hear, son, I recognize that. Let's finish this chapter on a good note with the good news. And in fact, he says in 16, Now, my son, this was the ministry unto which ye were called, to declare these glad tidings unto this people, to prepare their minds, or rather that salvation might come unto them, that they may prepare the minds of their children to hear the word at the time of his coming. It's only a few generations away by now. You see, that's the ministry to which you've been called, son, and to which you are still called if you'll change and repent. You now need the good news, the glad tidings for yourself. Well, perhaps you'll be able to teach them with even greater conviction now because of this sad experience. It's funny. I remember as a newly called missionary, home for the summer after freshman year of college, getting ready to leave, and still kind of sweating over what verse of scripture should I pick to put on my all-important missionary plaque. I really put a lot of pressure on myself. I just wanted to find the perfect one. And I remember once in sacrament meeting, I was sitting next to my mom. She typically doesn't have this kind of twisted sense of humor. I don't know where this came from, but I remember we were sitting there before sacrament meeting began and we were, I don't know, she must have been reading her scriptures or something, but she said, hey, Jared, wouldn't this be a crazy verse to put on somebody's missionary plaque? And she was in Alma 39 and she suggested verse four. She did steal away the hearts of many, but this was no excuse for thee, my son. Thou shouldst have tended to the ministry wherewith thou wast entrusted. And I remember looking at her going, Mom, what are you trying to say? Talk about a horrible verse to put on a missionary plaque. But ironically, she was really close. What I did end up putting on my missionary plaque was from Alma 39. But it wasn't the verse about what he should have been doing. It was about the verse about what he'd been called to do all along and would yet be called to do. I ended up choosing Alma 3916 because that was the ministry I was called to, to share good news, glad tidings of great joy that would be to all the people I could meet in Puerto Rico. But it wasn't my job to bring salvation to them. I don't have that power. My job was simply to prepare their minds so that the Lord could come with the salvation that only he can bring. And it wasn't just for the immediate audience, the people that I would meet, it was for their children and their children. Me preparing minds so that those minds can then prepare others, so that when Jesus comes, we're ready to hear him. All of this was just preview of coming attractions. I love verse 16 and that it was given to a young man who was struggling. This was the ministry that he was called to, and a ministry he eventually fulfilled. Now, like I said, I'm sure this was a difficult conversation for Corianton. There was probably a lot of squirming in that chair, maybe not a lot of eye contact. It would have been hard for Alma too. He says as much in verse seven, Now, my son, I would to God that ye had not been guilty of so great a crime. I wish more than anything this had not happened. Here's coming from a man that has perfect faith in the atonement of Jesus Christ. Born of personal experience. Scarlet sin can be white as wool. I understand that, but man, I wish to God that you weren't going through this. Like President Benson says, better to prepare and prevent than repair and repent. Thank God that we can repair and repent as Alma himself did, as Corianted, did, as we all do, but so much better to avoid that pain in the first place. These wounds will heal through the atonement of Christ, if we repent. He says at the end of seven, I would not dwell upon your crimes to harrow up your soul if it were not for your good. That harrowing is the word that Alma used for his own feelings, for his own sins. I know what this feels like, son. I get it. I've been there. And the last thing I want to do is cause you that pain. But if this is the pain of scouring out a wound, then it is redemptive. Harrowing, after all, was meant to prepare the soil for planting. And I have some very important seeds that I want to sow in your soil. So if in verse 7, I'm not trying to harrow up your soul, I don't want to dwell on your crimes, verse 17, it becomes even more positive. I will ease your mind somewhat on this subject by talking about these glad tidings that we've been sent to declare. Now, the last three verses in this chapter are interesting because it suggests a little bit of Corianton's mindset. And we'll see more of that in the next three chapters. Alma says, Behold, you marvel why these things should be known so long beforehand. We'll see in a moment, there's almost this sense of, does it even matter for us? We're BC saints. When Christ comes, doesn't that just kind of clean the slate for everything? And that's not the case. It's not automatic like that tidings don't become glad until we act on them, until we repent. And that's what we need to know as much as we need to know the coming of Christ. You see, 17, isn't a soul at this time as precious unto God as a soul will be at the time of his coming? 18, isn't it just as necessary now to know the plan as people who know afterwards? And not only is it just as necessary on our end, in 19, it's just as easy on the Lord's end. He can send angels now just like he can later. They can declare glad tidings now to us just like he can to our children or anyone after the time of his coming. How great the importance to make these things known, Lehi said 500 years ago. B.C. or A.D., we all need Christ. And that will be Alma's focal point for the next three chapters as he counsels this wayward son.